It can only have the sending of the Holy Spirit as we begin. Start my recording. The the sending of the Holy Spirit as we as we begin this this review again. The promises of this sending throughout the whole Old Testament, and in the mention of it in the Gospels, the actual coming of the Holy Spirit could only happen under what what conditions had to be there for the the sending of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' ascension, yes, I wasn't even thinking that, but yes, Jesus' ascension, because ultimately that, that's a great point. Jesus had to ascend to the Father, and we know that both in, in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says both, he says the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit, and then a couple verses later, he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And so he had to ascend on high, and then it says that in the Old Testament as well, he ascended on high and he held captivity captive and then he distributed gifts unto men. So that's another foretaste of it. But it's the ascension, which was the ceremonial, so to speak, incident in the worship ceremony of heaven, because that's really what you know Jesus is going into this holy of holies where there's just this constant adoration of God. And then he pours forth the spirit. So what else, what other conditions had to be necessary here on earth for that Holy Spirit to be able to be set forth? Anyone know? He had to, he had to cleanse and prepare us, the, the people that he was going to fill. Right. There, there had to be vessels to be filled Yep. Creation to then dwell. And Go ahead. Creation story. Yep. And Dwelling so of the Holy Spirit. People have to be prepared for God's How could a human vessel be prepared to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Somebody said something that sounded good. I conversion. Conversion. Yeah, yes. Because somebody, we have to be made alive. We have to be prepared vessels, like Robin was saying, but we also need to have that conversion, which then allows the Holy Spirit to indwell in us. Now, the Holy Spirit converts us. The Holy Spirit changes our heart. And then the Holy Spirit indwells us. Okay, everybody has that? Got that, right? So that had to be, that was what the condition had to be. How did that condition come to pass? He had to die on the cross. All right. So this is why this is so much bigger than I believe we actually see it when we read about the Holy Spirit. Because God's ultimate plan from the beginning is to make the whole world his dwelling place. And I'm not talking about his sovereign presence, because where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go to the depths of hell, you're there. God's everywhere. And I'm not, again, when I say depths of hell, it says depths of Sheol. He's mean. When he goes, the furthest away, even in the darkness, God is still there. Ultimately, hell is going to separate us from God forever. But that's not necessarily what he's mean there. But you got, so we have this promise from God from the beginning to not only indwell his people, but for his presence to be launched throughout the whole entire earth, okay? And that's what's happening in the book of Acts chapter two. It's the launching of God. It's the unleashing of God into the world. Not just through the ceremonial system of Israel anymore. Not just through the temple mount anymore. No, this is the promise that was made from the very beginning that God would, his glory would shine throughout the whole earth. And how does it happen? By the indwelling of the spirit in us and then as we go to preach the gospel. That's the gospel command. Go into all the world and proclaim the good news. Go into all the world and disciple the nations. Impossible without the Holy Spirit. Can't do it. The other preconditions of the Holy Spirit's arrival are what? Think legally. 
in the in the corridors of the great you know law library of of God's of God's dwelling place think think legally now the holy what else had to happen i don't want to give i want to make you think i don't want to give it to you what else had to happen What's that? The entrance to enter the Holy of Holies. Yeah, that's true. That's good. The, the Holy of Holies, the, 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 when Jesus died on the cross, the entrance is there. It's open now. Um, very good, but I'm sort, of going in a, I'm sort of going in a little different direction. I want to go a little bit wider here. What had to be defeated in order for the Holy Spirit to come? Sin. Death, what else, Robin? Satan. Satan and, yeah, powers of darkness. You see, because Satan owned the territory. He, we, lost the, we lost dominion in the garden. We lost it. Satan now goes to God and goes, what are you going to do now, God? Mr. Legal guy, Mr. Follow all the rules, Mr. Everything has to be perfect. What are you going to do now? You've now, according to your own law, God, have to curse the ground because of sin. And God says, don't worry. What just happened in the garden, I'm going to fix it. And he says to the serpent, your head's going to be crushed. Amen. Yeah. And he says that you're going to, your head's going to be crushed. You're going to bruise the seed of the woman's heel. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to bruise them. But his head's going to be, your head is going to be crushed. Satan is going to be defeated at the cross. The enemies have been disarmed. Right when they thought the powers of darkness, right when the powers of darkness thought that they had the victory by watching Jesus die at the cross, the whole thing, the great switcheroo happened and they realized they were defeated. So now only because, now because of that incident at the cross, it now, it, like, so to speak, when we watch the movies, you know, and we, 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 see the, we see all the bad guys in their space alien ships in the sky, and they're about, they have control of the whole world. They're all over the place. And of course, there's one control room that if somebody goes into that control room and they shut the shields off, the enemy's exposed and they all sometimes just, Die at once when you kill the main guy or the main robot, all the other ones fall. That's what happened. When Satan was defeated at the cross, the powers of darkness lost their edge. They lost their, they lost their sting. They no longer had power over the earth to claim it as theirs. And so right at that time is when God populates the earth with the Holy Spirit and sends the Holy Spirit and starts the church. Now the true people of God, the real, the, 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 the people of God are now remade. They're now reestablished as the true human race that God originally attended from the beginning, okay? Now the Holy Spirit is going to be unleashed through you, and the people, oh God, and to be in the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is the story of that unleashing. We see Jesus say, where are you going to go? You're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. If it wasn't, the Holy Spirit wasn't here, he'd say, you're going to go to Jerusalem and stay there. You're going to keep the sacrificial system. You're going to keep sacrificing all the cattle and all the bulls and all the doves and all the other stuff and all the lambs and all the goats. And you're going to try to get people to come to Jerusalem and meet me here and be converted to Judaism. And guess what? That's still not going to be able to take away sin. It makes no sense. Without the Holy Spirit, nothing happens. Holy Spirit is God. So that's where what's going on now in the book of Acts when the, when the apostles are receive the spirit and now they go out to preach the gospel from a big picture perspective, that's what's happening, okay? Anybody have any questions so far on anything that we just covered? Lee. Well, so the Holy Spirit wasn't here before Jesus stopped, is what you're saying. And 
It, the, the Holy Spirit did not indwell people until Jesus died. The Holy Spirit came upon people that God had chosen in the Old Testament to guide his people Israel. But the Holy Spirit, although God could do whatever he wants to do, but because the, 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 the whole entire people of God, the worship of God, and, and everything that had to do with the one true living God had to be covered, surrounded, and, and, and I guess you could say um, the whole stage had to be set in Jerusalem because that's where God set up his law and all the sacrifices just so he could commune with his people. It was a very complicated, as we know. It was. It couldn't go out into the whole world. Why? Because God had cursed the world. So nobody knew the true and living God as far as we know. He ruled the earth. Where? Yeah, well, here's the thing, Lee. So think about it like this. We're not talking about people. There were, there were Buddhism was around. You know, oh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. there was a lot of other re- really good moral religions around at that time. But everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. They were all in their sin. They all were, you know, those were false gods that they were worshiping. When you say they, you mean Jews? Yep, the blood sacrifices in the temple were a type of the of the sacrifices of Christ, but they couldn't do what? What could that blood in this temple never do? Could never take away sin. It only appeased. It only appeased God. God's ju- I shouldn't say God because yeah. then it seems like he's the tyrant in heaven going, I want your blood or else I'm going to kill you. It's not like that. It appeased God's justice. Yeah, he had to be, they had to do it because God said blood had to be shed. Right? Yes. Okay, so, and then eventually he did the ultimate shedding of the blood, which was? The cross. The cross, right? Yes, and now, the, every, now that was the real deal. The cross, the shedding of the blood, now Jesus dies, he rises again, he ascends to heaven, sends the Holy Spirit, so now everyone in the whole world can see and hear and know the real one true God. Whereas before they couldn't, unless they came through the Jewish religion. And even then, it was still by faith. God, the heart still needed to be changed. God's people, there were still many unconverted Jewish people so we don't, you know, like Paul says, not all from Israel, not all uh, that are of Israel are the true Israel, right? The true Israel is the converted. The true Israel are God's true people. We don't know who the true Israel is because we can't, I can't look, you can't look into my heart. You can only hear what I say and take my word for it and look at my fruit. Um, so Robin. I get a little confused with accomplishment of Christ defeating the enemy versus uh, where I, or, you know, destroying the enemy. There, there's ways of seeing it for my stuff, which I don't really fully understand. Like sometimes I spill over to one idea yeah. versus another where he has defeated the enemy, but what has he actually defeated? Because he still works to some degree, but I know something was defeated or like you said, disarmed. Yes. Mentioned. So can you, yeah, so let me read to you 1 Corinthians 15, and so we'll springboard off of that. So 1 Corinthians 15, towards the end. So if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, <clears throat> it says here, flesh and blood, this is verse 50, can't inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But I'll tell you ministry, a mystery, we, we will not all sleep, we'll be changed in a moment in a twinkling of the, of the eye of the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, this mortal must put on the immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and he's talking about the resurrection, the final resurrection here, and this mortal will have put, put on immortality, then will come about 
the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brethren, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. So this is an, that was a great question because the power of sin isn't going to be fully 100% eradicated until Jesus comes back. Got that? There's going to be no more sin when he returns. We have here, we have here that the sting of death is sin. Your sin has been defeated. The sting of death has been defeated for those that are in Christ. When you die, you will not experience the sting of death. Like Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, though they were dead, yet they shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. He's not talking about a physical death. But it's that sting of death that's been taken away by the cross. That penalty of death that's been taken away. That penalty of sin. Now, up until the cross, everybody gets that part, right? Everybody gets that part. If you, you, you know that when, because you're in Christ, you're going to die. You're going to be present with the Lord until the resurrection. You're going to be fully resurrected, and you're going to be fully in a new body. Without, there's going to be no sin, no tears, no all that, right? So now, before that, now, before the cross, Nobody can defeat the power of sin on earth. I'm going to repeat that. Before the cross, nobody could defeat the power of sin in their life. You were in bondage to it, and you were also in bondage to what, the Bible says? The fear of death. It says that in Hebrews. So all of our life, we were in bondage to the fear, not of all of our life, but all the lives of these people before they were fear of death because they knew that they were guilty before God. The power of sin at the cross, broken. Now we can live free from sin. Every one of us here has the power, that's a believer in Jesus Christ, to defeat sin. You have the power to overcome it. I'm not saying you have the, you're going to be sinless because everything that, that's, that's not done in faith is sin. That's a very big pull to have to avoid, right? Everything. So God's grace, that's why we don't understand how deep and, and, and wide the grace of God is. Wherever sin goes, the grace of God goes further. That was not available before the cross. So you have the, you have the forensic, legal aspect of sin, Robin, defeated over your life. But you also have the power of sin being in Christ, having the Holy Spirit that God has given you, that you can overcome sin on a day-to-day basis. That doesn't mean being sinless. That means walking in the grace of Christ. It means, and that's defeating sin. You understand? So we weren't able to do that until the Holy Spirit came. Now the Holy Spirit's living in us. Human beings can now defeat sin. Before Acts 2, human beings could not defeat sin. So, can I? Yeah, you can ask well, whatever you want. Jews, just for the Jewish religion. Um, so, the, what was the point of the sacrifice that God made them do, though? Just cleanse, just cleanse their sin? Was right. So, their sin? yeah. So, so, what hap- so, what the temple is. Yep. So, the temple and the law of God all right, is not a result of a heavenly meeting. And I'm obviously not pacifying your question at all. I'm just saying to make it break it down. It wasn't a result of a heavenly meeting where God and, and you know, all the other upper echelons of, of his leaders or who, however you want to call it, we're like, well, what do we do? How about we make up a law? 
How about we make a, sacrifice, a sacrificial system? How about we make a ceremonial system? Uh, how about we have a feast and we do it? No, that's not what happened. The law, the Torah, is an expression of God's character in the, heavenlies, in, in the heavenly realm. So the, the, the tabernacle is a, is a picture of what is in heaven that surrounds God. No, you see, that's what the typical mentality is. If a, a Jewish person in the Old Testament, if you went up to them and said, are you going to go to heaven? They would not understand what you were talking about. They would say, well, what do you mean heaven? Heaven's coming here. I'm not going there. They would say, well, what about, you would say to them, well, what about when you die? They'd say, yeah, well, I'm going to be in the ground. I'm, my spirit's going to be present with God. But we're waiting for God to return as he promised and make the whole world his kingdom. You see, that's the mess up because we read in our Reformation theology back into chapter uh, of into the into the Old Testament, and we think the Jews were running around trying to pick up this moral checklist of being good because that's what the that's what Roman Catholicism was all about. That's what the Reformation was all about. Now, there was a sense of it that they said, here's what they thought, Lee, this is what they thought. <clears throat> it wasn't that, hey, we're checking off all these things, so we're going to go to heaven. They were like, we're the people of God. We're the chosen. You're a Gentile dog. It was their pride. When we read in the New Testament about them thinking they could attain what? Righteousness from the law. He's not saying righteousness, moral checklist, moral ladder. He's saying we are righteous in the sense of covenant faithfulness. We're the covenant faithful. We follow, we have the law. It was passed down to our, our people, not your people. And that's where, <clears throat> and then this is what they did. They took the law and then they started, instead of following it, they started manipulating it and writing commentaries and commentaries on commentaries. You know, the Mishnah, okay, and the Talmud and all these other things. That's what Jesus is rebuking. He's saying your traditions are causing you to miss the law. So they were supposed, they weren't saved by the law. We talked about this last Sunday. It was a forbearance. God overlooked their sins knowing that the Messiah, which what the law was pointing to, was going to cover and ultimately satisfy God's justice not the type of the cross, which we see in the sacrificial system. Does that make sense? Okay. So <clears throat> again, I'm going this route because I want to show you the tremendous, profound impact that the Holy Spirit should have on our theology. The Holy Spirit is God. Remember that. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit's not a liquid Holy Spirit's not a, a, a force, okay? The Holy Spirit is God. So the Holy Spirit, God, comes into human beings and indwells them and loves them and fellowships with them and gives them a big hug and says, yes, we're reunited, we can fellowship. Why? Jesus died on the cross. His blood now perpetually fulfills the law for us. He perpetually covers our sin forever. He perpetually gives us the amount of grace we need to live our life and, and, and defeat sin. And we are walking with Christ. We are embraced. And now our, our job as having God in us is to go out into the world and show the world this Jesus and this what he did on the cross. And God says it's so much so that I'm just going to be, all you got to do is be obedient to me. Do what I'm telling you. Love one another. And the Holy Spirit in you is going to do the work. Pat. Yeah, there, there's something that you said before, and I don't want to misquote you, but you said yeah. that, um, that Jesus' death, um, paraphrasing, mm -hmm. destroyed sin. But I want to go back to, <clears throat> um, to the sacrifice once a year of, of the sacrifice. We know that the scripture said there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no, without the remission, without the blood, there's no remission of sin. Yes. And I look at that as like cancellation of sin. I understand that you said it until the cross, you know, that sin was defeated. But what was the purpose then? Of that scripture? 
Yes. So again, remember where that scripture you're quoting comes from. You remember what book that's from? That's from Hebrews. Okay, now the book of Hebrews is, is a book that is, was written to Jewish people to answer that very question. So what about the law? What about the blood? What about all this? And the writer of Hebrews says, listen, without blood, there's no remission of sin. However, that, which is what he's talking about, is the holy of holiest blood, which was the only thing that could satisfy the holy of holy of justice. See, only a holy God himself, only the blood of God could satisfy the justice of God. Only, I'll say it in, in, in vernacular that we can maybe just don't take this and think of God wrong, but only the blood of, the holy blood of God could satisfy the holy wrath of God. Nothing else could do it. So he's telling them, look, to answer your question, why we did all these blood sacrifices? Because it was pointing to the sacrifice of Christ, the only one that would be applicable. What did, what did it do as far as the sacrifice when it was being done? Did it, did it take away sin? No, it didn't. It couldn't. And that's what Paul says in the law. And people say, well, then why did we even have the law? Is, it, is the law bad? And he goes, no, the law isn't bad. People are bad. We couldn't overcome sin by the works of the law. Yes, Rich. My understanding is that the purpose of the ceremonial sacrifices, uh, the sacrifice of uh, uh, the ram by Abraham, the, the covering of the blood on a doorpost for the Passover, everything, just like you said, pointed to Christ, but people were to place their faith in the coming work of the Messiah. For the, for the basis of their salvation. So, although the blood sacrifices themselves didn't cleanse anybody of anything, it did point to the work that Jesus would do when he came. Yes, I agree with that completely. Now, the Passover and Abraham's sacrifice were before the giving of the law. Right. Yeah, so, the giving, so they were a type of what was to come in the law when God brought his people out. But it pointed to the only thing that I would say question there is, and and not just me, but only thing that a lot of people question is, is did they actually believe and say, well, I'm having faith in the Messiah that's going to come? Or was it that they were saying, we are having faith that God is going to do what he's going to do and he's going to come rescue us. And that rescue is going to be done through a Messiah. The people of Jeru- the Jewish people did not think God was going to come because, I know, I, yeah, I, know, I just wanted to correct I know that. This is written much later. Yeah. Isaiah speaks about the, like, like, a, like, a, uh, like a lamb slaughtered. Right. I mean, he's the one, he talks about the, the actual work of Jesus, right? Yeah. I know it was, you know, I know uh, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah's life was in like six, seven hundred BC. 750, yeah. yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but I mean, it, it's it, I, my understanding is that everything in Scripture, uh, ceremonially, in some shape or fashion, pointed to the completed work of Christ. That, that was. I agree with you. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I'm going a little bit too too, too nitpicky uh, with it, but I'm just what I'm trying to do is again, when you read the Bible, we're gonna we're gonna eventually get to this. <clears throat> We want to make sure we use the right hermeneutic, which is the right translate, uh, the right interpretational method, and that we're consistent with that. And one of the ways to make sh- to do that is to think about the writer. Who was he writing to at the time? Who were the people that were listening to him? What, how were they perceiving it? So when they read, when 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 Isaiah wrote Isaiah fifty two and fifty three which was a picture of the suffering servant that was to come, they didn't look at that and say, oh, this is going to be the Messiah. This is God coming back. This is God. They weren't thinking of that at all. If you look at the, even the Old Testament. They, well, they don't. They look at that servant, that suffering servant that they're describing is Israel. And who is Israel in the flesh? Jesus. However, we are told 
where Rich is coming from, he's absolutely correct. In the New Testament, we are clarified that that scripture was, was not about the suffering servant specifically of Israel. It's about Jesus Christ fulfilling everything that Israel was supposed to do and be. And in that took the punishment that Israel deserved from God. So I'm trying to give you more of a biblical theology on this so we can interpret it right, which means go into that time and place. But sometimes we do have to step back. And what Rich is saying more is a systematic theology where we're looking all about the whole entire scripture. And he's right. He's doing that. He's correct. But what we're trying to do here, we're trying to point, we're trying to see the significance. I want to try to pull us back now. The significance of the giving of the Holy Spirit and how Critically, it's important it is for us as a church to know what we believe on this and and to be solid on what we believe on this. And so I want to go through that. I want to give you guys a, I want to sort of conclude on this baptism of the Holy Spirit. This indwelling, what I just explained to you guys has nothing to do with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Does anyone disagree with that? This is all the coming of the Spirit. This is all God coming to his people as he promised, indwelling them. And now in Acts chapter 2, he not only indwells them, but in Acts chapter 2, he also comes upon them for power to go out and witness. Does anybody have, hi Vivian, does anybody have any comments or questions on that? Or if you want to go back, we can if I left you guys hanging. On anything. Anybody completely lost right now? Smile if you're completely lost. Okay. You're lost. You smile. (laughs) Don't be. Don't be lost. Let's reel it back in. So let me go back to what I was trying to say. The importance of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament It came upon people for power to speak the word of God, to do miracles, to do different things, but he did not indwell people. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was sort of like a a, a spy agent that would show up undercover, all right? And then it would show it and it would reveal itself inside the, the camp for the most part of Israel. But that was a picture of what the whole entire world was going to see and do and be. So God came, he died on the cross, he broke the power of sin so that the Holy Spirit can go out into the world. He bought back the land that was held for ransom. He bought back the creation that was held for ransom. And now the church is to go out and tell all the world to, to repent and to trust the one true God by believing in his son, who paid and broke the power, that's paid for sin and broke that power, Jesus Christ. Now, in order to do that, this is where the, we have the divisions in the, in the church, okay? And in my opinion, the, a lot of times I speak to people that don't believe in the baptism of the Spirit and don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit uh, that are active now, and I could talk to them and I could still see a, uh, that we're almost ultimately getting to the same place, we still, usually there's nobody that's a Christian that doesn't believe the Holy Spirit lives in them. I don't think there's anybody that would deny that, right? Is there anyone here that denies, that, that doesn't believe the Holy Spirit as a Christian lives in you? And so, you, you know, there's people that say, yes, the, uh, the Holy Spirit's in me, so the, the, it's unlimited what God can do through me. And I say, amen. And then the person that believes in the baptism of the Spirit says, well, then, what about the person, what about it when that person who has the Holy Spirit living in them in Scripture, but then gets the Holy Spirit, epi, E-P-E, comes upon them for works of service? Well, that's where we have the divide. And so we have people that believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the active, extraordinary gifts, which are still present today, which typically are the gift of tongues the gift of healings, and the gifts of miracles. These are, that there are some of the extraordinary gifts, but there's also gifts of prophecy, gifts of knowledge, gifts of wisdom, gifts of administration, gifts of helps. 
that to me would be inconsistent if I said, well, they're here, but the extraordinary ones aren't. Because to me, the most, one of the most extraordinary gifts, if you look at the gifts listed in 1 Corinthians, the last one to be, lift, to, to be listed always, and this is how writers used to do it, is they would list the least important one last. And that's where tongues always is listed. And the first important one is prophecy, speaking the word of God. So if you don't believe in the extraordinary gifts and you believe in the word of God still being able to effectively be preached and convict and change someone's heart, there's, in my opinion, would be an inconsistency in hermeneutic. And so there's two camps. There's the, what they call the cessationist camp, which is, uh, which is what? What's, the word, what's inside the word cessationist? Cease. Cease. Stop. What's that? Okay. And then there's the continuationist camp, which is the gifts continue. Okay. Now, what I want to do is today I want to talk about just a little bit about those two things and sort of maybe generate some questions and then we can, we can, we can continue to move on. So does anyone, let me start it this way. And I sort of went this way a little bit in the beginning, but what, when you think of the Protestant Reformation, okay, when, when the, when the church split, what do you think of first thing? Luther. Martin Luther, right. Martin Luther, what did Martin Luther do? Nailed. He nailed the 95 thesis. What, what was Martin Luther so angry about? What was he so? Indulgences. indulgences. What were indulgences? Paying for your sin. Yeah. Paying for sins of yourself or others. And, uh, and that's how they would get you emotionally. They would come to the town and they would say, hey, how many of you had, and it's obviously paraphrase, right? Just how many of you had a relative die in the past couple of months? Okay, past couple, back then there was, the life expectancy was maybe 40 or 50. There's a lot of people or in the villages and, and they'd say, look, they're in purgatory right now. If you pay money, you can get them out and get them into heaven faster. And so Martin Luther was very upset about that. And so when you think about the Protestant Reformation, you typically think of Martin Luther, indulgences, and then right after that, really, what is indulgences a form of? Anybody? Works. works, thank you. It's a form of works. And so if you had to summarize the Protestant Reformation from the typical, what we know about it, it's usually, well, that's when the church stopped working their way to salvation and separated from the Roman Catholics. And so the Protestant, the protesters, the Protestants went this way. You don't work your way to God, salvation by grace. And the Roman Catholics went this way and said, no, you do have to work your way to God. It's a combination of grace and works, and they have to sort of be together and all, all that. I don't want to get into that. But what my point is, is this. Since the Protestant Reformation... Our church, when I say our church, you know, typically, unless I say this fellowship, the church wholesale has um, been very focused on the, the grace of God, rightly so, but also very, very hypersensitive about works. It's, and that's usually part of the gospel presentation. Are you good enough to go to heaven? Because it's, you think you're a good person and... You're not. <laughs> you can't work your way to God. It's all true. It's all true. But like sometimes when you get, you know, in a car and, you know, a deer runs out in front of you and you, you correct. If you overcorrect, you can flip the car, right? You got to be careful with those deer. Well, I believe that with the Protestant Reformation, we have overcorrected a little bit on this whole works thing. By no means am I saying works equate to being saved, but it's become such a stinky, almost a Christian cuss word, like fiddle-faddle, is works, right? We, we don't want to say that. It's no work. You know, it's all God. And, and it is. But what we do is we miss a lot 
a lot of rich doctrine in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, by being so afraid of works. Because we're like, we've got to stay away from that. It's all God. It's all God. And it is. But because of the Protestant Reformation, we now have to train ourselves when we see works in the Bible to make sure we take it in the right context. Well, the same thing that I just, what I'm explaining to you now, what happened with, with works and the Protestant Reformation, the same thing happened with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit after the Protestant Reformation. But it was the other way around. The Roman Catholic Church, one of the main tenets of the Roman Catholic Church was oral tradition. So equal with scripture was oral tradition. So if you're a a pope or a priest or a saint, and there was an oral tradition that you appear to people when they pray to you 23 times, then that became equated with scripture. And it became a really wacky doctrine where the Roman Catholic uh, theology was that miracles and supernatural works are all still pertinent now, but yet like the works and the indulgences, they were being abused for their own benefit of the church. So instead of going into a town and saying, pay your indulgences, they would say, hey, this is where Mary appeared to this little boy the other day. Let's start building a shrine here. Let's start giving money for this. And it just started to, it's a very small little caricature of what was happening, but do you guys get the point? So John Calvin, who was the, one of the leaders, if not the premier leader of the Protestant Reformation, other than or with, along with Martin Luther, John Calvin condemned the extraordinary miracles and said they're not pertinent anymore. An impulse reaction, in my opinion, and I've read his stuff and I don't see, he doesn't spend a lot of, in my opinion, doesn't give a great biblical defense any different than some of the people do now. But they said that those things have ceased. Does everybody follow me now? Do you see the comparison? It's an imposing, it's, it's taking our worldview or maybe a, a, a doctrine that we're trying to defend and we overemphasize it because we're protective of it. And that's what I believe had hap- had has- can happen. And I think that's going to happen throughout the whole, ju- the whole history of the church going forward, too, as well, the future. Because it's a natural thing for us to do. So when that split happened, they wanted to separate from Roman Catholicism as much as they could. So we have the Roman Catholic miracles, and then we have... Calvin and the Reformation. Now, as the Reformation started having their own fights and battles between Calvinism and Arminianism and Bible versions and church government and denominations and all these other things, once they started to branch off and the Reformation started to grow, we began to see some um, re-entry of these doctrines coming back. But usually it was in a defense, and I'm sorry that I'm talking so much today, but I want to get this stuff out and then we can interact a little bit. But right around the time when science started to develop and become popular, particularly Darwin's book, um, Origin of Species, and, and these books that came out of nowhere and baffled some of the theologians and the whole world, as you could see, when the whole world and the media and everything and the news jumps on something, you know, people start to believe it. Now imagine, at the time, this was what they were trying to use to attack Christianity, this Darwinism. So there was a major shift, if you look through the history of the church, around the time of, well, even if you go before that, um, <clears throat> when you go through the times of the Renaissance and the French Revolution, where they were trying to just get rid of God everywhere, and then you have uh, the age of reason, and it's like, oh, we're smart, we're progressing. And then you have Darwin, and now the church is like, hypothetically, like, now what do we do? So there was a big shift of, from, the, from the church being the physical, um, prophetic voice to the world to now in, in, inverting and becoming overly spiritual, 
And that's when we see a lot of these different doctrines like dispensationalism started around the same time. The dualistic nature of God, meaning we have dualism. We have uh, spirit, which is all good, and material things, which are all bad. The world is bad. It's going to burn. It's going to do this. Stay away from it. Go away. Bad, bad, bad. And God is all over here. He's spiritual. Keep yourself, keep God in your own closet. And so the spirit has never stopped moving. If you look through all the revivals from the very beginning, even before the Reformation, you see God doing the same thing as he did in the book of Acts. You see him using people, pouring and coming upon people for mighty works of revival, mighty works of evangelism, mighty works of church planning, mighty missionary works, okay? But the denominations were still fighting and having these different um, uh, these do- doctrinal differences all across the board. And then you had movements such as the Pentecostal movements and the charismatic movements um, that were very, very over the top. And anytime you have people that get the power of God, they usually abuse, or any power, they usually wield it for their own good. Because any, can anybody see an example of that in, in, well, I just started to mention it in the book, in the New Testament. <clears throat> any book, book of the Bible yeah, was... Okay, good. What else? What, what book of the Bible, let's go for a book, shows people that are completely filled with the Spirit, but yet at the same time they abused it? Corinthians. And we look at the Corinthians go, oh, man, they were so carnal. They were so this, they were so that, and they were. But they, and when I think about that, and I say, well, would I rather have, you know, a Berean church who's in Acts 17 studying the scriptures, very calm, very orthodox, very intellectual, very academic. I love that but yet not filled with the Holy Spirit? Or would I want a Corinthian church, which is full of zeal, full of the Holy Spirit, but yet making some dumb decisions? I think it's harder to push people or show people the power of the Spirit and get them to wait on God and do all the things that we're supposed to do. I think that's a lot more difficult than pulling people back. So I would pick the Corinthian church because they had, they had the word of God. They were involved in some sins. They were involved in some, you know, dumb, dumb things, but they would be pulled back. Okay. So anyway, so the the point of the matter is, is that there's this Pentecost, there was the Pentecostal over the top, crazy, people took this, this, and they went way, 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 way off. And I think a lot of the reason was was because of the there became an anti-intellectual movement after science, the Renaissance, age of reason, all that started to come into the church. <clears throat> Instead of standing up with the scriptures and knowing we have a reasonable faith, and knowing that that when and again there wasn't a great apologetic back then for this. There wasn't a Greg Bonson that I remember or a, or a Van Til or anyone that would have just decimated that whole worldview in a second. <clears throat> but at the same time, now we had this intellectual movement and we have the, the people that say, well, they go full force with Pentecostal charismatic or they say, I don't want to go there because of what could potentially happen. Look at the Corinthian church. I don't want to go there because how do we control it? What if people start standing up and doing stupid things or whatever? I've heard a lot of different stuff, right? And uh, rightly so. There has to be order. There's people in the middle that are, they, uh, I forget what they're called, but they're open about the gifts of the Spirit, but very cautious. Maybe that's where, you know, that's where I was for a, a while because I said I couldn't reconcile it in here. But at the same time, until I said to the Lord, you got this, God, it's not me. I can't generate the spirit. And that's where people make the mistake in the charismatic movement. They say, oh, you don't have the spirit? Come over here, buddy. And they just, you know, they'll do a bunch of whatever they do. I don't want to kill them too much, but 
you know, gold dust and it's, we've seen it all. We've seen the holy water that you, you know, that if you spend, but that's the, that's the, the route. In the Bible, it's always God that does it. Man never can initiate the baptism of the spirit. So with that said, cessationism, non-cessationist or continuous, my thing is, what about the Bible? What about what the book of Acts says? Some people say, well, Pat, I'm going to give you the objections. Well, the gifts, and this was B.J. Warfield, uh, who's a the- Princeton theologian from 1800s. He said, or maybe early 1900s, he said, um, the gifts of the Spirit were only used for the apostles because they had the task of launching the church and they needed that extra support to show people that God, that this is real, Jesus really did rise from the dead. But yet these are the same theologians that talk about the power of the word of God preached that's able to do that. So to me, there's a contradiction there. There's others that say, well, once the Bible was done being written, once the canon of scripture was done, that was no longer needed because now we have the word of God. Say, okay, but what about the word? Where does it say that this has ceased in the word of God? And where do you show me this ceasing throughout history? Not that I'm an experientialist or an empiricist that I want to experience everything, but there is a good argument for real men of God that we know who were used by God in a powerful way, just saying here, throughout all of history that have been empowered with the baptism of the Spirit. Wesley, Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards. You know, these are people in our days and time you know, I can go through dozens and dozens of revivals of men. And it wasn't powerful men all the time or women. It was, there were times where people were praying for revival and they're praying for the Lord to, you know, to do things and nothing's happening. And a, a, a young person comes up and says, I just need prayer for something. And that's who God used. And the, the power and the, the sense of the presence of God was there. And then... Before you know it, it's not just one, one church, it's two. Or not one college campus, it's two. And then it's five, and then it's 20. And nobody can explain it. Then it's done. But God has done it and used it. And so that's, that's my perspective on it. I don't want to, well, I mean, we could, I would love to continue. A purpose of, um, of this Bible study is to go through a review of the book of Acts. But I just think that as we go through the review of the book of Acts, this has to be in the forefront of our mind because it's not the books of the Acts of the Apostles. Really, it's the books of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see it on every page. So that's why I wanted to cover this now. So we have time for a couple questions and then we could we can depart. Girls? <coughs> Boy, no, you sit front row and you don't have a question. <laughs> Hubert, you got a question? Yeah, so if we, as we're, you know, reading through the entire book of Acts, you know, what's, what kind of mindset should we have? What should we be looking for? How should we approach it? That's a great question. How should we approach the book of Acts hermeneutically, really, when we're looking at it from a, uh, of an interpretive perspective? Um, you can look at it the way I would prefer you look at it in this study with us in every Sunday is from a perspective of the church being launched out into the world. Um, look at, if you can, if you could follow through, which would be really great if you could do this, is as you're reading through Paul's different journeys, go to the books that he wrote while he was on those journeys. So when he's in Ephesus, you know, go and read the book of Ephesus. Ephesus. When he's in Philippi, read the book of Philippi because he's writing to these letters based on the trips that he had there. So that could sort of connect you as well. I would just say, read it like that and also read it um, and notice how the Holy Spirit, the works of the Spirit in so many, it doesn't work the same way twice. It really doesn't when he comes upon people. Notice how he comes upon people that he already came upon before. 
That's what I, that's how I would read it. Now, I believe, now you could look at the book of Acts. We could do a missionary study on the book of Acts. We can do an evangelistic study on the book of Acts. You know, we could do a, a, a study from, you know, from the Old Testament on the book of Acts. But what, what we're trying to do here is get a broad, nice, broad, good, a juicy overview so we can be the New Testament church. That's what I desire. That's what I pray for. Not us to be the church that is the coolest church or has the most amount of people or just list everything else that maybe we could think of in our flesh that would be cool, you know. But no, we want to be the church that prays, that fellowships, that stays according to the word of God and see it's the, according, the apostles' doctrine and sees God move. I want to see the Lord work while I'm here. I only got a few more years left. I'm going to be here. I want to make this, I want to do whatever I can. And if God chooses to, to lay his spirit down upon us, great. If he doesn't, just as great, he could, he's, gonna, he's in control, we want to use it. But we want to make sure we're open for whatever God has for us here, you know. And he works in, in many, many, many different ways. So any other, one more question? Nat, you had a question? No, I thought you went like this. Okay. I didn't have a question, but. You were saying, from, you know, going back in history about the, 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 the divisions or separations coming out, having a view of one thing and then separating it and then the other, the other side completely rejecting what the other side was saying. Um, and then that, that happening throughout history uh, has helped me to break up my own box, be willing to break up my own way of looking at things and commitments to say, you know, there might be something I have missed. And that has helped me grow even more because holding on to our, you know, think outside the box kind of commercial uh, is really, uh, not the commercial itself, but being open to, to the Lord and, that, and, and what his word says um, rather than a commitment to what someone told me. Because I've been to a lot of churches and a lot of ideas have been taught to me over the years and some things I held on to and defended and then later see, okay, there's a problem with this. Or there's a bit of truth, but the, the whole thing needs to be thrown out. Or some of it needs to be thrown out and some of it retained. So that has helped me to develop and learn more and not just throw away, you know, throw everything away sometimes. Very good. And it's, I could ditto that, man. I could see so many... Things, times in my life where God has brought me through a doctrine that I've become immersed in it. And then when I was pulled out of, away from it for a while, I saw where maybe I went too far, but yet brought out of it that nugget of truth that God wanted to give me to carry on and to move on. So I just want to close. Robin, would you close us, not right now in prayer, but in one minute. I want to just end the way I ended last week about this is, again, there's no claiming or taking or anything like that as it relates to the, the baptism of the Spirit. But I would pray over the scriptures uh, that, that talk about the promise, which uh, two that I wrote down is Luke eleven thirteen and Acts 2, 39. Um, and, and just seek the Lord for whatever it is that he wants for you in your life. And seek him and knowing that he's going to give you that power to be able to accomplish it. Seek him personally. Wrestle with him. Um, and that's one of the, the things. Again, What's that? Would you give the reference again? Yeah, I'm sorry. Luke eleven thirteen, and Acts 2, 39. Let me just make sure. Sometimes I write scriptures down a little lazy. Make sure I want to. That's Acts 2. I know it's Acts 2.39-ish, but I want to make sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's it. Acts 2.39 is, is good. Okay. So next week, um, I'm excited that Kevin is going to be teaching this, this uh, uh, Sunday morning, Sunday school on, a, on Acts, but from a perspective of, I believe, missions. So... It should be good, and then the following week we'll jump back into the prophecy of Joel. We'll we'll, we'll get him going soon, and that that'll help. That that's going to help us even more understand this. So, go ahead, Rob. Uh, thank you, Father, for this, this study um, about your Holy Spirit and, and the works uh, that the church has done. You are doing through them. Uh, thank you, Lord. Uh, just 
Continue to bless our time together, our understanding. Grant us wisdom so that we too can walk in the Spirit and uh, be empowered in, in, in listening to you, Lord, uh, for your glory. Help us, Lord, to, to serve one another, to love one another, and to reach the lost with, with the gospel, and uh, help us to, to have those opportunities to your glory again. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Quick announcement, right after church, go to Ocean Grove. By the really big church, what's it called? The, the Grand Great Auditorium. Great Auditorium? That place. Or the Pavilion. Yeah. yeah. Solutions, Block for Life. Oh, that's today? Food, free stuff, but Duh. there's a lot of cash or checkbooks. Because <laughs> it's a fundraiser for Solutions. That's today, Claudia? The one that we advertised last week? Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I don't know that. <laughs>